If you will, this morning, we're going to get back in. Actually, we're going to clean some stuff up from last time here. So we're going to be back in verse 26 to 27 again and uh, try to uh, clean some of this up and just kind of, I didn't quite get everything covered last time and had a couple com- uh, had a couple questions came over about some stuff in 1 Corinthians 2, so we're going to just kind of clean that up this morning. So uh, Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth What is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, again, we've been down through these verses uh, quite extensively. For the first and really only time in Paul's epistles does he say we don't know something. And uh, we don't know what we ought to be praying for. And again, it's the issue of the content of our prayer. Not so much that we don't know how to pray, but it's the content And uh, really, we need further understanding is what is needed, and that's really where we're at here. And so when we pray, what should we then be praying for? And that's the question. Well, verse 27, the the issue in verse 27 is it tells us what the Holy Spirit is seeking to accomplish in our lives. And again, you have to be very careful here when you talk about these verses and not get caught up in the religion and the Christendom and the mess out there about uh, God is the one doing the groaning, God's the one that comes over here and you pray, and then he retranslates your prayer to match the will of God. Like the Father needs the Holy Spirit to tell him what, you know, what you're saying. And it's interesting, the groanings in verse 26, in the context, who does the groaning? You and I do. Creation does. So, you know, so you've, you've got that as well. And again, he's making intercession for us. He's not intervening. He's not interceding. He's, I'm sorry, he, he's making an intercession. And uh, we said last time that issue of intercession is really a third-party type term where it comes in and it brings two parties that are at odds to the same conclusion. And he's, he's going to come in now, and he's going to lead us to an agreement with the Father's thinking. And the groaning, by the way, if you come back up there to verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. So the groaning is in creation. It isn't the Spirit groaning. Why would he groan? He's not under the bondage of corruption in the context we are. So what we're beginning to learn here is that the Father has provided for us some some things in connection with us being connected to the bondage of corruption. The first issue is there in verse 24. 
for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We have a hope. So in the first thing that the, you know, here we are, we're, we're connected to the corrupt, to, to creation, to the curse of creation, the bondage of corruption. So what are we going to do? We're going to have disease. We're going to have decay. We're going to have death. We're going to have all of these mechanisms to bounce down through things. And the Father has provided hope. And it's a hope that requires us to patiently wait for it. <laughs> and you know what mankind does? Do we patiently wait for anything? Not at all, you know. It, it's a bam, 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 go, go, go. So we're patiently waiting for a future glorious expectation. We're waiting for something that's coming our way. It's to wit the redemption of our body. But it's the issue of redemption. That's the issue that we're waiting for. You know, we know we get a new body. We understand that. But really, our hope is in the issue of being redeemed, not justified redemption, because we have that, but being redeemed from the bondage of corruption. And that hope is a real hope. And he, it's, it's an anchor. Hebrews 6 talks about the anchor uh, of the soul and its hope. Uh, oh, just come over there, Hebrews 6. It's a fascinating verse here. Um, i got to find it. Hebrews 6, verse 19. Hebrews 6, 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. No, no, notice that. We have a hope which is a what? An anchor of the soul, sure and fast. And if you think about an anchor, when we went through this part, in, go back to Romans 8, you think about an anchor, what does an anchor do? Absolutely nothing. There's no mechanical issue at all. You don't put gas in it. You don't put oil in it. What do you do? You drop it to the seafloor, and what does it do? It rests. It sits there. It doesn't do anything. It, it, it just sits there until what happens? The ship begins to pull on the chain. See? And then... Think, I, I think about that anchor, the, the concept of the anchor. It's quiet. It's silent. There's no moving parts to it on its own. It just lays there on the seafloor until what happens? The storm rolls in. The, the, the ship begins to move, begins to pull on the chain. And when it pulls on the chain, what does the anchor do? Well, it does what it's designed to do. It digs into the floor. It still hasn't done anything else. <laughs> it, it's amazing. The it just digs into the floor. And the more the ship moves, the more pressure is put on the anchor, and the more the anchor digs deeper. Again, it still doesn't go any. It still isn't, you know, start the engine. It just is there. And that is our hope. It's there. It's silent. It's quiet. But yet when 
we get into the bondage of corruption and the groaning, you know, not you don't groan every day. I understand that. You you have good days. You're to rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, rejoice always. You know, you always are. Re- but what does it do? It moves in. So our groaning, our hurt, our the effects of life. But we have this unseen hope, and 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 in Romans eight, that's the first thing the Father gives us, and again in verse. 23 there, the end of it, the redemption of our body, that's our hope really, is that glorious heavenly hope, that redemption of the purchased possession. And then in verse 26, he says, hey, I, the Father's going to help you in another way as well. And that's verse 26, the likewise the Spirit also, what? Helpeth our infirmities. He doesn't bail us out. He doesn't deliver us. He doesn't uh, change the circumstance. He comes in and he helps us. He takes the, the, the other end of the load. You, I, I, he comes in and helps. Uh, yesterday we had the memorial service for Linda Sill, and we had set tables up. And you know what? I grabbed an end, Linda grabbed the other end, and we moved the table. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes in and says, you get your end, I got my end, and let's do this together. He doesn't come in and say, sit down, be quiet, I'm going to do it all. He says, I'm going to come and help you. And the reason for that is, honestly, come, come over to 2 Corinthians 4. It's something that you have to catch. When you hear people crying and praying for healing, we used to have some neighbors that lived down the street from us, uh, and Second uh, Corinthians four, and uh, she was going to a Benny Hinn meeting because she wanted her mom healed of cancer. Guess what happened to her mom? She died of cancer, and Benny never healed her. So she is sitting in this mo- in this frustration of Christendom. D U M B, by the way. Okay, on the end of that word, <laughs> and she's looking. But you know what? God will never rob you of the eternal weight of glory that's yours. Romans 8.18, uh, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the what? The glory. That scale issue, the glory has got you down. No matter what's going on over here, that suffering will never lift glory up. There's, it's not comparable. And in 2 Corinthians 4... By the way, do you, I hope you understand that the Apostle Paul never asked to be healed. There are two passages that people use that say that he did ask for healing. They, and, and they say that from a misreading of the passage. The one passage is 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to go there. You know, we've been there. And the other one's in Philippians 2 with Epaphroditus and so forth. And they say, see, he's asking to be physically healed. And when you study the passage, he is not asking that at all because what does he know? God's not going to rob you of the opportunity to use your volition to rest in his word to you to have an exceeding and eternal weight of glory added to your account. And you see that here in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal, what? Weight of glory. Moment. Worketh. Weight. Exceeding. Glory. Light affliction. 
think about that light affliction. Look at verse 8 with the Apostle Paul. We are troubled on what? Every side. You know, the, 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 the old quote about the, the soldier that said, there's the enemy to the front, the enemy to the sides, the enemy to the rear. We're ready to attack. Everywhere Paul turned, guess what was there? Distress, the enemy. And yet, what does he say? Yet not distressed. You see, the moment here, <laughs> the moment here isn't Susie's hurt back. That's a, mo- that's a physical issue, yes, but that's not, Paul's talking about the pressures of life coming down on you. And he says, what are we? We're not, dis- not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You see, the light moment, the light affliction, isn't, you know, this morning I uh, trimmed my fingernail and I got it too close to the, you know, oh, 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 that's not the light affliction. That's just stupidity on Rick's part. The light affliction is when the pressures of life have just got you and they're nailing you. And what are they? They're for a moment. But why are they for a moment when you're comparing it to what? Eternal glory. It's just a little bit. You know, I don't know how many people on the earth anymore, a couple billion or whatever. But do you, I hope you realize that nobody knows who you are outside of your sphere of family and friends. When you think about the masses, even in this county, you know, I think about that, you know, we know ourselves, we know each other, we know people, and yet beyond that, who are you? But just a little pimple on the, on the, the, the little dill pickle, the little bump, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's fascinating, but yet, who are you? You're a saint of the Most High, and he knows you. It's a moment in the grand scheme of things, the grand plan that God has, it's only for the moment. And that's the viewpoint. We're to have God's viewpoint. We're not to view it as something other than that. How does God view it? And that's where the Spirit comes in and helps us. That's where he comes in and intercedes. Because what is our moment? I'm going to use Susie. Okay, her back, she hurt her back. She's on pain, she's on drugs, she's feeling the high life, okay? Now it's moved, left to right, right to left, up and down. Uh, And, you know, so what are we thinking? Oh, my goodness, out. But in the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. If you follow that, that's where the Spirit comes in and helps because the Spirit, in the moment, what are we? Oh, my goodness, And the Spirit says, hang on a minute, let's adjust your thinking to who you are in Christ and to God's viewpoint. And you know what God's viewpoint is? It works for us. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It works for us. You know what? It work- life is not the enemy. The struggle of life is not the enemy. In Romans 8, eventually we'll get down to about verse 37 there, and we'll find out that we are a more than conqueror. (laughs) And in the context, it's over the issues of suffering, infirmities. But, But we're not there yet. 
how are we to look at life then? It's, it's a what? It's an opportunity. It's working for us. And a far more exceeding. Can you imagine something exceeding, exceeding? I mean, it's pretty good, you know, but it's just going to get better. What a description of glory, a weight of glory. And again, this is a, that glorious return on the investment, you know, your ROI. Return on investment, what is it? You know, Linda's retiring and we're looking at her 401k stuff and we're trying to figure, and well, what's the uh, return on investment? Well, here's one that is going to last forever. <laughs> And it's the viewpoint. And again, verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's that issue of a walk by faith and not by sight. But you know what verse 18 is? There's our hope. Our hope. We don't live our lives in the, in, in the reality of every situation. We live our lives in the reality of our sustaining hope that fortifies our inner man, that comes along and regardless of what's going on, we know what? The temporal, the seen stuff, the stuff right here of life is just temporal. And the reality sits over there. So when you come back to Romans 8, as the Spirit helps us, as he begins to intercede, and again, it's not intervention. The, the new Bibles get, the, get you to intervention. Christendom gets you. Religion, he, intervention is not intercession. Two different words, spelled differently, defined in the dictionary differently. And again, that issue of intercession is that third party coming and taking two parties and bringing the, the, them into an agreement, bringing them to the same conclusion. And now we're going to, in verse 27, we're going to see how he intercedes. And folks, the Holy Spirit wants our thinking to be in agreement with our Father's thinking. That's what he wants. And in verse 27, he says, and he that searcheth, the he there is the Father. And that he, what? Searcheth the heart. We looked last time through Psalms 139 where he knows all things. He searches all things. He, the reins of the heart, the reins, the control, the back, the, the back and forth, the movement. He has the capacity to search your heart. He knows everything about you. You think about him searching your heart. That ought to scare you a little bit. <laughs> your heart. The the seed of your understanding. Here's your agenda. Here's what motivates you. Here's what compels you. Here, what, do you what do you want? What do you think? How, how you process stuff. And you know what? He knows, how, he knows what makes you tick. He, he knows everything. I, I know sometimes people think, well, if I don't, if I don't talk to him, he'll stay over there and I'll just be over here and he'll leave me alone. No, he's got your number. He's right there. But he's searching for something in verse 27. He's searching, he searches the hearts knowing what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he, the Spirit, maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Notice that issue of 
He's look, the Father is looking for the mind of the Spirit. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is, and he knows what it's not. And he's looking for that in your thinking and in your heart. And again, we looked last time, back up in, in the chapter here, verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. You know you can go do that. You can live in the flesh, but what's the, what's the consequence of it? Well, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is what? Death, functional death, okay? You're not, function who, you're not functioning right. You're not doing. You're not, your mind isn't the same as the Father's. But then he says, verse 5, but they that are after the Spirit, in other words, mind the things of the Spirit, or after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What's the consequence of being over on this side of the ledger? Life and peace. And what is the minds of the, what is on the Spirit's mind? Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life, where? In Christ Jesus. So the mind of the Spirit has to do with all the things that are about life in Christ. And, and what's been provided to us in Christ. And we understand that last time we, we looked in Acts 1. How does the Spirit work? He works with His Word. Uh, look over at Acts 1. Very fascinating. You know, people have this weird idea about Scripture and Bible and everything, and that just really a bunch of men wrote it. And it was holy men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit that wrote it. You want to read what the Spirit says? You want to read the mind? Look here at Acts 1. Look at verse 16. Peter here on the day of Pentecost, or I'm sorry, before the day of Pentecost, as they have to get 12 back into the number, and men and brethren, the Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which, by the, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. And you go back and you read Psalms 41, and guess who you do? You read that Psalms, and you know what? You have no clue he's talking about Judas until Acts 1, because he don't bring Judas up. He just talks about a friend betraying him. And, and so he quotes. So if I want to know what the Spirit's going to say, what do I need to go do? Go need to read Psalms 41. Paul does it at the end of Acts, in Acts 28. Acts chapter 28 and verse 25. So as the Father is looking for where your mind is, and he's looking for the things of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit, we can know the things of the Spirit. We can know the things that concern the life in Christ because we have the Scripture. Acts 8, 28, 25, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and the ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. 
All the, the spiritual condition at Israel is, is uh, dire. Be it known, therefore, unto you that salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles. And that's the word Paul spoke. And the leadership of Israel cut him down. He said, hey, you guys are dull of hearing. You can't get this. You're spiritually heathen now. And I'm going to go to the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. See, the word that he spoke was he gave them the, he dressed them down, if you will, about what's going on. Come back to Romans 8. So when the, the spirit here, the father searching the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the spirit, he wants to see the things of the spirit in your heart, in the, the seed of your understanding, where, who you are, what drives you, what motivates you. Colossians 3 says our affections are to be set where? Above. Your affections, that's you. That's your thinking. How do you think about this? What are you going to do? How, how do you think down through issues? And where is that to be set? Above, seek and set, right? You guys okay? Just Sunday morning. Come on now. It's okay. And yet that's what he's looking for. Why? 827, the end of that verse. Because he maketh what? Intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Real quick, what is the will of God? It's been made known, Ephesians 1. It's over there in Timothy. Look over at 2 Timothy 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. I, you know, how... <laughs> He's making intercession for us. He's, he's, gonna, he's bringing the, our thinking and the Father's thinking together into agreement. He's using Scripture to do it. 1 Timothy 2, if you look there at verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Notice the will of God here, that ye may live, I'm sorry, that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Boy, what a great component of the will of God. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will, here's his will, have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And then Paul goes on and, and qualifies all that out. What's the will of God? What's, he wants our thinking to be in line with the will of God. Romans 8, 27, what's the will of God? He would have what? All men get saved, and he would have you come to the knowledge of the truth, and, and then there's pieces in that truth. There's good works for you to do. There's a lead a, a, a quiet and peaceable life and honesty and how to deal. And he says, hey, if, I, if that's going to be the case, then i got to get you to think like I would have you think. And I gave you the Holy Spirit through his word to then adjust whose thinking needs to be adjust. Ours or the Father? I mean, you think about that. <laughs> Here's Rick, and I need to think like who? The Father. The Father doesn't need to think like Rick thinks. See? 
the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, all right, look, here's the, here's the word of God. Here's the word of the Father. And we need to work in your inner man over here, Rick, to adjust your thinking to the Father's thinking. That's Romans 8.27. That's the intercession. That's bringing, that's adjusting us to the thinking of the Father, to what he values. What stirs his heart? Do you know who stirs the heart of the Father? The Son does. What, what, gets, what gets the Father excited? What are his expectations? He's the Father of glory. The glory plan. The, all that heavenly place doctrine and details. He's got it right there. And the Holy Spirit takes us, and he's going to bring us to the same conclusion. Again, the issue, we're in Romans 8, back up in verse 15 there, we can cry, Abba, Father. Remember when we looked at that, the only other person that could ever claim that was the Lord Jesus Christ, but you and I can claim that as sons of God, as adults in the family. But think about that cry of Abba, Father. When did the Lord make that? Not in the moment of ease, but in the moment of tremendous persecution, tremendous despair, he sits there in the garden three times legitimately and asks that the, this cup pass from him. But before the father can respond, he adjusts his thinking. He adjusted his will to say what? Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, in, in the Lord and his humanity, what does his humanity want? Take it away, man. I don't want this. This is nuts. But in his thinking then gets adjusted, by the way, in his humanity, you know what he says? Not my will, but thy will be done. Because he's going to go die as a man. Well, God-man, you understand that, okay? See, he, he, there's, an, a, there's an issue here. So the Holy Spirit has a very active ministry in the realm of your inner man. And that ministry is designed to bring your thinking in line with the Father's thinking. So they are united. You're in Romans 8. Look at Romans 12. Now, we're not in Romans 12 yet. We've got a whole bunch to go through yet. But look at Romans 12. Look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore. Boy, isn't that what a wonderful word, that beseeching word? It's not a beg. You know, people say he's begging. He's not begging. He's saying, based on the doctrine that you understand in Romans 1 through 11, here's now where you need to be. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's proper worship. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service i love that word reasonable it's not unreasonable god looks at israel and he says come let's reason together let's think this through together so god is not unreasonable i've i've said it before god is a gentleman 
If you want to go do something dumb and stupid, he'll let you go do it. He's not going to override your volition, nor will the Holy Spirit. And be not conformed to this world. Okay, so here's what you ought to be doing. Let's adjust your thinking to doing that, reasonable, reasoning it through. And what's going to happen? Be not conformed to this world. That's going to be the result. You're not going to be here. You're going to be here. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do I renew my mind? Paul says to Timothy, until I come, give attendance to reading. 2 Corinthians 4, there where we were just a minute ago, verse 16, we didn't read the verse. The outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed. How? Day by day. A daily intake of the word. Three chapters a day. Simple. It's not hard. It's just what? The discipline to read just three chapters a day. Romans to Philemon specifically. But if you read three chapters a day, you'll get through Romans to Philemon in 28 days. It's less than a month. You've got a couple days to catch up or take off <laughs> and then start over. And what happens? You begin to renew that thinking process. And you know what will happen? That you may prove. You know what prove is? Test it. You remember geometry class? And you got here's the problem. Now prove it. And you've got to do all the goofy things. When they said X, Y, and Z equals numbers now, I quit. I'm like, I'm done. Forget it. <laughs> you know, when... Fine for X. Well, I found X. It's right there. No, we need a number, Rick. No, it's a letter. It's, <laughs> I was done. You're going to prove it. You're going to test it. What are you proving? What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? There's a growth in that. Good, acceptable, perfect. You're growing. Why? Because, well, we're still in Romans. And what are we doing in Romans? We are growing. I'll go back to Romans 8. So the Holy Spirit has a very active ministry. And the design of it is to come along and to adjust your thinking. And he's going to do that using Scripture, using the Word of God. Last, come over to 1 Corinthians 2. Last time we looked in John. We looked at John 14. We looked at John 16, where the Lord tells the little flock, the Comforter's coming, the Spirit of Truth's coming, and what's he going to do? He's going to bring to remembrance the things I said. He's going to cause you to learn. He's going to teach you. He's going to do all of this. Paul's going to tell us the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 2. And it's interesting, the Holy Spirit works. He operates in the realm of your inner man via a very tangible, objective standard called the Word of God, Scripture, okay? You, get, you got 1 Corinthians 2? Hold that, run over to Hebrews 10, a passage that I, I use in my, in, when I talk to people about which Bible to use, because that's usually a question. If the Holy Spirit's going to work using the Word of God, then guess what I got to know I have? The Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Scripture, script. The stuff written down. Inspiration. God breathed it. Think about that. God took his mind, deity thinking, and put it down into human language. Hebrew, Greek. You know that uh, I was reading a report a couple months ago. Ninety, the 
Bible, the Word of God, the King James Bible, okay, the Word of God, has been translated in 90% of the people languages of the world. It's the number one translated book of all time, this is the scripture. There's no other literary work that has been translated that much. That's, by the way, that's why it's hated so much, too, by the way. Okay? Look, look at Hebrews 10. Look at verse 7. He's quoting Psalms 40, but Hebrews 10, 7, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, um, which, by the way, is who? God. First word of the, chapter 1, verse 1, God. Who it's on, God wrote it, okay? Then said I, and this is the Son, Lo, I come... In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The volume of the book is written about who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So if the scripture I'm going to use, come back to 1 Corinthians 2, is going to de degrade or detach or, or do away with the attributes of who God the Son is, I don't want that. I want the one that's going to be about who? Him. You follow that? And you can wrangle all you want about how you translate that. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is, is when you read in English, for you, for you and I, if you're reading in English, the King James Bible is the only one that promotes the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's happened in the recent years? You know how we use verses about the virgin birth and they use an NIV and how it messes it up? Do you know that the NIV has gone in and corrected those verses and now say positive things about the virgin birth when before they tore it down and they make Joseph his father? They fixed all that. You know why? Because the people that were using that are getting hammered by us, by God, you know, people who, wait a minute, but they're also beginning to understand that, hey, that virgin birth issue is a pretty important issue. So the, in the latest edition of the NIV, that's a conversation I had with the salesman one time. He, he came by, he called and here and I talked to him. And I said, why do you keep producing editions when the King James hasn't changed but just a few times? And it was really all spelling and gr gr uh, punctuation stuff. The text is the same. And he's like, well, you know, we got, and I'm like, no, you, you, I'll keep the old. Thank you. Well, you know, the oldest translate, I go, you don't have the oldest. You just changed it. It's the 35th edition or whatever it was, you know. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 2. <laughs> you, need to have a, you, need a, you need a King James Bible. Why? Because you need the Word because the Word is where the Holy Spirit is working. Okay. The Father searcheth the hearts for who? For the mind of the Spirit. So how does the Spirit then work in your heart, work in your inner man, and reside? 1 Corinthians 2, Paul lays that out for you and I. Verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. 
For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. You understand what I'm saying because you have a spirit. You're made of a spirit, soul, and body. Three components make you up. And because you have the spirit of man, I have the spirit of man, we can communicate and talk to each other. Do you know what a dog, you know what a dog is missing? That ability to communicate with you. Why? Because he doesn't have the same makeup as you do. He has a different makeup, the animal kingdom. So when he barks at you, and you go, oh, he's so cute. And uh, there's some videos of the huskies, and they're, Hoo, you know, they're just barking. They're doing what a dog's going to do. But, you, you know, you sit there, and they go by your tone and everything. But that's what we got. Everybody, we all have a spirit. Verse 12, now we have received not the what? The spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, notice something. In verse 11 and 12, you have three different spirits. You have the spirit of the world, you have the spirit of man, and then you have the spirit of God. Okay? And it's critical to identify those things. The spirit of the world is operating in verse number 9. How does the spirit of the world operate? It has an eye gate, an ear gate, and a heart gate. Gate, the way into you. Think about the world. The spirit of the world uses the eye and the ear and the heart. And that's why I tell you, anyone with an experience will beat the truth every day. of the, every day, Because how are they functioning? They saw it, they heard it, and they felt it. You stand up with the truth, which, by the way, you understand that by faith. And guess what they say? Yeah, but. Okay. The eye gate, the show me state, <laughs> prove it to me, show me. I won't believe it unless I can see it. So the world, and you do this as well, by the way, is you base, your understanding gets based on what you witness. And you understand the issue of an eyewitness account. You know, you go up on an accident and the police get eyewitness accounts and they'll have three accounts and you know what? They're all very different, you know, and they have to parse it and put it together. When two eyewitness accounts are in total agreement with each other, then they know that collusion has happened. <laughs> and we got our stories together. Why? Because everybody perceives, you know, the red car hit the black car, which ran into the white car. Notice I didn't say blue, I'm colorblind, so blue looks green to me, you know. <laughs> hey, the green car, it's not green, Rick, it's blue. Well, okay, that car hit that car. And then, you know, Paul comes up and says, no, the white car hit the red car, which ran into the black car. And you're like, well, which one was it? Now, the police have science to figure all that out, but the thing is, is what do we got? We got different ideas. So it's not smart, it's not recommended to... Rely on your eye, because what do your eyes do? They fail you, don't they? 
I woke up this morning with a eye migraine headache, and, you know, you see in splotch. I'm, and I'm like, this is not going to be good because i got to read today, you know. Don't look. What Paul's saying here is you can't look for the things that God has prepared for them that love them. You can't look with your eyes. They're unreliable. Then he says ears, your ear gate. That's when you say, my mom told me that. My grandma taught me that. My pastor says this. The theologians say that. And then you end up getting the collective wisdom of the ages. I've got books that are called the, the, uh, the, the Church Fathers, you know, the ancient ones. And you get to reading them and you go, these people couldn't find their way out of a wet bag, you know. <laughs> it's just, it's a mess. But yet, what do you do? You run to those guys and you want to know God. And what you begin to do is you begin to trust what someone has said about God. And guess what? We're not always right, so you can't do that. Then he says heart, the heart. Oh, man, the heart. This is probably the most dangerous component in this three. Come back with me to Jeremiah 17. The heart. Every, and, and what the heart is, is this is where you see the popular trend that everyone has their own idea about who God is. And what he's doing. And you base that upon a feeling. A moving. And what begins to happen is you find out that Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. The heart is deceitfully above all th- deceitful above all things. Think about that. The heart is deceitful. What's it doing? It's tricking you. Jeremiah 17, 9. And desperately wicked. Desperately. It wants to live independent of God, of the Creator. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? You think you know you, but guess what? You don't know you. You know who knows you? Hebrews 4, verse 12. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than two-edged two, uh, two sword, <laughs> dividing. Isn't that interesting? Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. You know what cuts you down? The Word of God does. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know who reads your meter? Come back to 1 Corinthians 2. Every time you read that book, every time you study it, you're reading three chapters a day in a very generic manner, and it's reading your meter. It's clicking off, ticking. And that heart... The heart wants to live free from being held responsible, from being held accountable to the Creator. So what does it devise? Romans 1. It devises mechanisms to get around him. So the first, Romans uh, Romans 2, verse 9, the spirit of the world, that's how the spirit works. Guess what? If you work in the spirit of the world, in that darkened, World, spirit, idea, you can't know the things which God has prepared for them that love him. 
But what did God do, verse 10? But God. Here's the contrast. Don't ever forget the but gods. What did God do? He hath revealed them unto us by who? By his spirit. To reveal something. In order for me to know you, you have to tell me about you. If we want to know God, what do we have to have? God tell us about himself. So he did what? I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to reveal myself to you in creation, Romans 1, 19 and 20. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to put an inner thing in you that you know that there is a God. But I'm going to come over here and do something far better. And that is I'm going to reveal myself through the use of words. And I'm going to use scripture. And I'm going to come along and I'm going to move in and I'm going to reveal some things to you by my spirit. By the way, it's the deep things of God. Isn't that wonderful? We'll come back to the spirit here in just a second. Because in verse 11, we have the spirit of man. And you think about the spirit of man. Look over with me at Ephesians 2. And look at verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. When you think about the spirit of man, an unsaved man, his spirit is described for you in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the, of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So unsaved, what were you? You were a child of disobedience and a child of wrath. That was what was operating and functioning in your spirit. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. But now watch four, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with him, with Christ, by grace ye are saved. What happened? You came to Calvary, you got saved. Now what happened? Verse 1, 2, 1. What did he do? And you hath he, what? Quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. What did he do? He came in and gave you a new spirit. He came in and gave you a new man, a new creature, something new. He took your old dead spirit and quickened it. He regenerated it, Titus 3 says. He came in and regenerated you and brought your spirit so that his spirit could do what? Commune. Follow that? So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 2 here and he says, hey, the spirit of man, he knows the things, he's doing this, he knoweth no, you know, uh, uh, 2.11, For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, we're not over in that, but the spirit which is of who? Of God. Why? That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. We can know the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. How do we know that? We're, we've been made alive, we've been given a new spirit, a new situation, and God, the Holy Spirit, comes in and works in that inner man, revealing to us through words 
on a page, in a book, those things that are freely given to us, okay? Now, how do you know that, verse 13? In Christ, folks, we're given life. And that life allows us to have a relationship and have a fellowship with the Godhead, all three. How does that happen? Which also, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. The Holy Ghost is going to come in and he's going to use words. Now think about words which man's wisdom teacheth. Right down the street is a, is a university, Arizona State University. They teach man's wisdom there. They use books. They use curriculum. Now, think you got to be careful when you talk about man's wisdom because learning to be a doctor is a good thing. And you know what you want your doctor to do? Go to school. <laughs> you know, I always think about Jeff Foxworthy and his, you'd be a redneck stuff, you know, and you know you're a redneck if you're laying on the table and the doctor comes in and says, we're going to cut you open and just root around in there and see what we find. <laughs> you know, you don't want that. You want them to know what they're doing, right? So where did they learn that from? You want your nurses to know. You want, you want a lawyer to know what he's doing if you needed one, right? You know, uh, poor Brian's truck's broke. You take it to the mechanic. What do you want the mechanic to do? You want him to know. You see, that's, man's, that's a component of man's wisdom. Now, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, the Lord deal, Paul deals with man, the wisdom of the world, but that's more of an, a the, religionous, religion set. So don't always say, well, man's wisdom is bad. You've got to be careful because some of man's wisdom is good, and it's, we need it. But where did you learn that from? Books. My two daughters go get their master, they get their... Uh, undergraduate work, then they go get their master's degree, and you know what? I, I got all these books. Why? Because they're learning. They use words. You know what the Holy Ghost does? Same thing. Uses words. And his plan and his purpose is to come along and to use words. And he uses words, again, in the Scripture, Notice it's teaching us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect. What is that? Because there's a comma, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Perfect isn't not sinning anymore. Perfect's mature, growing up, learning. In Scripture is God's revelation so that you can come and you can formulate the mind of the Spirit into your thinking and then you can get into it. Now, real, watch verse 15 because there's something that happens here where Paul illustrates this. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have... The what? The mind of Christ. In the context of the passage, it is clear that the Holy Spirit is using words to teach us, to communicate to us through Scripture. And what do we have? We have the mind of Christ 
don't we? Where is it? Right there in the book. We can come and we can say, okay, what is Christ thinking on this? And there it is. You follow that? Now, the end of verse 13, that's really where I was headed. <laughs> All that's introduction. <laughs> Notice how, what he says here at the end of verse 13. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, that verse is not talking about comparing Scripture with Scripture, verse with verse. That's how that gets used all the time. That's not the context. What's the context? What's the spiritual things? Well, you got the spirit of the world, and you got the spirit of man, and you got the spirit of God. You got these things, verse 9, the end of verse 9, that God has prepared for them that love him. So you got a different context. By the way, comparing verses with verses is critical. Don't get me wrong. It's just not right here. We need to compare something. We need to be comparing the spiritual words of man's wisdom, and we need to be comparing them with the spiritual things, the words of the Spirit. And the issue is in that word, compare. Come back with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. When you think about when he says compare spiritual things with spiritual. Let me ask you something. You think the spirit of the world, the eye gate, the ear gate, the heart gate. You get sucked into that, trying to compare it out and figure it out. You're lost. Not spiritually or anything, but you'll, get, you'll be Solomon of Ecclesiastes. You won't be up, you know, what in the world's going on? That's why he warns you to stay out of that. He says you need to stay over here in who you are in Christ. Look at this issue of compare. Isaiah 40, look at verse 18. To whom then will ye be likened, God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Notice what the, get the idea here that Isaiah is saying. To whom then will ye, ye liken? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? When it, the verse says comparing spiritual things with spiritual, the Holy Spirit is comparing likeness, likening. Come over to chapter 46. He's taking our new man, our new spirit that's in us, that God has given us, and he's revealing to us the, the deep things of God. He's allowing us to comprehend, to understand, and he's taking the spiritual words of wisdom, and he's bringing them into the mind, the heart of the believer. He's comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Likeness, likening. Look at Isaiah 46. When you compare something, it's to make equal. And that what the Holy Spirit is doing here is he's wanting our inner man to be in agreement to what the Father's Word is. He wants us to have this in our inner man, what the word says, you know, when the Father's word says do this and do that and don't do this, then we're, that's what we're doing. I hope you follow that. 
Isaiah 46, look at verse 5. To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be what? Like. The Spirit compares. That's, who, by the, that's who's doing this comparing in 2.13 is the Spirit. And he is compared, he's making us like or equal to the information that God is teaching us. Why? Because chapter 2, verse 15 says, What do we have? The mind of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. How is the mind of the Spirit residing in your heart? How is it? functioning in the realm of your inner man. We take the living words of Scripture that the Holy Spirit has conveyed to us, revealed to us, and oh, by the way, preserved for us, and has made available to us. And he says, that is what needs to be in your heart. Come back to Romans 8 there. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When the, when the, in 2.13, when he says comparing spiritual things with spiritual, he's talking about let's bring the spirit, the deep things of God that's revealed by the Spirit, and let's bring them into equality in your spirit. And let's move this so there's an equality here. You follow that? I hope you do. Think, think on it, <laughs> okay? He's not talking about comparing a verse with the verse, which is critical, but in the context, he says, look, you got the spirit of the world and you got the spirit of God. Both of them are fighting over who's going to run you. The world is going to use words. Guess what? The spirit uses words. And when the spirit teaches, you know what he does? He takes his, these words, the words of God, and he brings them in equal Comparing them into you. So now you know how to function. So in Romans 8, 27, actually verse 28, which is where we'll start next time, he says, and we, what? And we know. Now he's back to, we know something. And from the, the rest of the passage here, Paul is going to list now how to handle the, the bondage of corruption. How to handle life. So we have a hope the Father gives us, verse 24 and 25. And then we have the working of the Holy Spirit. The Father has conveyed, he, he's got the Holy Spirit and them together working in your inner man, in the words, so you're on an on a equal understanding with what the Father would have you do. That's how he intercedes. That's the intercession. And he's doing it according to the what? The will of God, which is not Israel's program. It's what he's doing today in the dispensation of grace. Okay? All right, I took five minutes. I apologize for that. I, I was hoping to give you ten back this morning. But the comparing spiritual things with spiritual, the things, the deep things of God, all of that information that's been revealed bringing that equality equally into you so it's in your thinking as you learn as you grow and the, and the person that does that is the holy spirit 
working through the Word of God. Okay? We'll get into verse 28 because verse 28 is, and of these three verses, verse 28 is one of the most abused verses because it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And then they get in there and they start pulling the old religious rug out from underneath you when it's not working right. And they get you on a guilt trip and it's not, <laughs> it is so much more wonderful than a guilt trip. So we'll get there next time, okay? All right, dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for the uh, instructions here in your word and the ability to know how the Spirit's working today in our inner man through your word. And Lord, I just pray that that would be evident and resident in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we'll see you back.